0: Good morning. Grace and peace to you all from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to worship at First Presbyterian Church. We're so glad you're here with us. Uh, before we begin our worship service, just want to call your attention to a few announcements that are in your bulletin. First off, midweek, our midweek Wednesday night Bible study and dinner kicked off this past week in the Family Life Building. We're grateful to be back in there. Uh, we, will, we will meet for dinner at 545 This Wednesday with Bible study and activities to follow. So we'd love for you all uh, to come out for that. Would also point your attention, of course, we had women's circles and and Bible studies going as well. Uh, The Joy Group will paint ceramics with Susan Clark on Tuesday, September 26th at 2 p.m. at the Winston County Libraries. Um, Also, the youth will meet this evening at 6 p.m. in the home of the Willers. The address is in your bulletin. Uh, Just a reminder, our Sunday night worship service has moved to 5 o'clock, so you're all invited to that as well. Uh, Lastly, Edward Williams, who has a ministry with FCA, will be with us next week during the Sunday school hour and the worship service to introduce us to his ministry also next next Sunday, not in your bulletin. We will observe and participate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So, of course, take this week to prepare your hearts for that this coming Sunday. That's all I have by way of announcements. Again, welcome. Let's take a few moments to prepare our hearts to worship the living God. Please stand with me for our call to worship. Our call to worship comes from Psalm 136, verses 1 through 3. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us this morning and calling us to yourself. We pray that you would receive our worship, that you would be exalted, magnified, and glorified as we worship you during this hour. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing together hymn number three, give to our God immortal praise. Take your bulletin in hand. We will confess our faith together using the words of the Apostles' Creed. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. We're going to take a few moments now silently where we can individually pray and lift up our desires, our needs, and our worship to God in prayer. After a few moments of silence, I will pray and we'll end our prayer time by praying the Lord's Prayer together. So silently for a few moments, let us pray. Father, have mercy on us sinners. We read in your word that by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, yet he still speaks. Father, help us to offer our worship to you by faith, not out of fear, not as a front, not because of force, but out of faith in the God who raises the dead. We come here not in order to gain your acceptance, but because Christ has earned our acceptance for us, and worshiping and living by this faith, help us to live lives that will speak of your glory long after we are gone from this world. The heavens declare your glory. The earth contains your riches. And you've created us and given us everything we have. Through Christ you have turned us into vessels that, like the heavens, declare your glory, and like the earth, contain your riches. In you we live and move and have our being but fully needing Jesus and being aware of that need. Father, I pray for families and individuals in this congregation. I pray for their needs, physically, emotionally, spiritually, that you would feed your people today and give them what they need to sustain them for this week. We thank you for the opportunity (coughs) to gather on the Lord's Day as the body of Christ where we can not only worship you but can also minister to one another's needs where we can lend an ear or a helping hand where we can have fellowship and communion with one another and with you we bless you for these things and now we pray together as our Savior taught us to pray saying Our Father who art in heaven heaven, hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We do not to temptation, but deliver. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ, who was rich for our sake, became poor, that by his poverty we might become rich. We thank you for your endless generosity to us, and as a token of our gratitude, we give back what was already yours and ask that you would use it for your glory. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. We'll now sing together hymn number 455, And Can It Be That I Should Gain. may be seated. Our scripture reading for the sermon this morning is Genesis chapter 4 verses 1 through 16. I'd invite you to turn there with me. But before we read it, let us pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to not only open your word, but to study it, to hear it proclaimed. So I pray that you would help it to be proclaimed clearly. That you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand what you reveal to us. And you're wholly inspired and inerrant word, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis 4, verses 1 through 16. Hear God's word. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit Of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will, it not be, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive. And a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And this ends this reading of God's Word. Genesis 4 records the first human birth and the first Murder. We see a crib and a casket all in one story. Last week we talked about how, even after the fall of man, God showed overwhelming grace to Adam and Eve and all mankind through them. And you continue to see this in Genesis 4, especially with Cain. God is extremely merciful to Cain. You wonder. What is Cain afraid of? How many people are on the earth? Are there on the earth that could have possibly killed him? Well, he's probably got an angry mom, uh, that's for sure. And so God here is being merciful to a murderer. Why? What's He teaching us? He's actually teaching us something about worship. He's teaching us that worship has life and death consequences. How? Well, three points to work toward an answer. We're going to talk about wrong worship, consequences of wrong worship, and how we can get worship right. So number one, let's talk about wrong worship. And last week we saw Derek Kidner said, God's first word to fallen man has all the marks of grace. It is a question, uh, since he asks a question to help Adam, God must draw Adam out of hiding rather than drive him out of hiding. God is drawing sinful man out of his hiding. It's like he's trying to counsel and teach Adam and Eve how they've done wrong and how their mistakes and sins can be corrected. And you see the same type of thing. God's doing the same exact thing with Cain. He's asking him questions. So in our text, starting in verse 3, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, And Abel also brought of the first fruit of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. You see, question, question question why are you angry why is your face fallen Cain is like an angry sulking child and God is coming to counsel and to teach him and to draw him out of his anger and out of his pity if you do well will you not be accepted God is saying Cain instead of sulking you need to change if you want to be accepted by God there's another way there's a right way Which leads to the question, why didn't God accept Cain's offering? Cain was doing it the wrong way. What was the wrong way? And people have come up with all sorts of theories on this. But the New Testament's authoritative answer on why God didn't accept Cain's offering comes to us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. When it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. So what was the difference between Cain and Abel in God's eyes? Faith. Abel brought his offering in faith. Cain brought his offering in unbelief. And notice that God did not accept Abel's offering because Abel was righteous. Instead, God accepted, Cable's, or accepted Abel's offering to show that Abel had been counted as righteous. It was proof of God's righteousness credited to him. It was not because of his own inherent righteousness because he was good. It was because he was righteous through faith, that doctrine of justification that the whole rest of the scriptures are going to teach. God is eager and willing to accept worship, but only worship that flows out of a person who worships in faith. Now, when you don't worship from faith, you can still worship. But it will be imitation worship. It won't be authentic worship. And imitation worship is absolutely deadly. And you see that so clearly in the passage. There's another passage in the New Testament uh, that talks about Cain and Abel in 1 John chapter 3. It's a stunning passage. It starts in verse le- 11. And it says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous. Notice twice there in the passage that John says that Cain murdered Abel. The Greek word is a, is a little more intentional than murder. Murder sounds a little broad. Here's John MacArthur's commentary on this. The word here regarding Cain murdering his brother is the Greek word sphadzo. It means to butcher by cutting the throat. That's an important thing to say, and I'll tell you why. Because there had only been, up to this point, one indication of a death prior to this murder. And it was God slaying an animal to take the skin to cover Adam and Eve. And very likely, God had killed that animal by slitting its throat, which became the standard practice in the sacrificial system. So Cain literally came up behind his brother and butchered him by cutting his throat. It was as if Cain said, Oh, okay God, you want a sacrifice, do you? You want an animal sacrifice? Here's one. Whack. And this is MacArthur. So listen to this. The human race... Learned to murder when it was taught to worship. You can teach people to worship, but if they belong to the devil, they'll use what you teach them to murder. That was Cain. Had a lot of thoughts about that this past week, thinking about the anniversary of September 11th. You can teach people to worship, but if they don't worship the true God from faith, they will use it to murder Nevertheless, God was merciful to Cain because Cain was trying to worship. God was showing him there's a right way to worship, but Cain isn't worshiping by faith. And so he fails. And as a result, his worship turns deadly. And that leads to two. Number two, the consequences of wrong worship. In our passage in verse 11, God says, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So God says to Cain, If you do right, won't you be accepted? You can change. Instead, Cain doubles down and sacrifices his brother. And what does it lead to? God says he's cursed from the ground. From now on, nothing, does, nothing Cain does will be fruitful. In God's plan, the tone of life is set by worship. And the fruitfulness of your life is ultimately determined in God's eyes based upon that worship. And if you try to worship without faith, you'll worship a false god, you'll worship a created thing, you'll even worship yourself, you'll make sacrifices to all the wrong things, and God will not bless them. those sacrifices with fruit. You'll sacrifice your children and your family at the altar of career success and wealth. You'll sacrifice your relationship with God to worship at the altar of your hobbies. You'll make little altars everywhere making sacrifices you want to make without ever making any actual connection with God. Now, I heard a Reformed University Fellowship RUF minister say years ago and it always stuck with me. At a big SEC school in the south he said every 18 year old girl that walked through the doors of RUF there, had problems with their mother. And it was always for the same reason. Because mama had such big expectations. Because mama hadn't achieved everything she wanted to achieve in life, and boy, her daughter was. And so with, with the weight of a God on your children, they're doomed to fail. They're doomed to fail. They'll never live up to your expectations, and you'll end up crushing them and crushing yourself with those expectations, because essentially you're worshiping your child instead of parenting your child. Amy Hempel has a short story that starts with one of the characters at a store and the store doesn't have what she's looking for. And the first words of the story are the clerk saying to her, are you here for all the things I don't have? Then there's a scene where the mother in the story is lying in bed and she lives in California right next to a fault line. And the story mentions there was an ordinance in the town where she lived that you were not to hang heavy objects on the walls near beds because if an earthquake happened in the middle of the night while you're sleeping, you would be crushed. And there, li- there on the wall right above her bed is, guess what, a picture of her daughter implying that it would just take one mess up on her daughter's half and it would, be half and it would ruin her entire life. See, whatever those false objects of worship, whatever it is that we're worshiping wrongly, it's like we're on a fault line, they're right above our bed, just waiting to crush us at any moment. We're looking for things they don't have. Acceptance with God. And, of course, ultimately, eternal life. Frederick Buechner wrote an essay about his mother after she died. She was a woman who, her own son said, worshipped her own beauty. And her worship of her own beauty ended up essentially ruining her life. He writes, Over her dressing table, there hung for years a mirror that I can remember from childhood. It was a mirror with an olive green wooden frame on which she had once painted in oils. The French words being translated as the motto of her life mean, You have to suffer in order to be beautiful. What she meant, of course, was that all the pain she took in front of the mirror, the plucking, the primping and powdering, the brushing and painting, that kind of suffering. It's something really simple. It's just beauty. But everyone chooses their sacrifice to make. What they're willing to suffer for or what they're willing to inflict suffering on others for. And that's the thing, ultimately, that you worship. The problem is, if you worship something other than God... The ground is going to be cursed for you. You're never going to be fruitful. Eventually, everything is going to go rotten. Begner continues. Being beautiful was my mother's business, her art, her delight. And it took her a long way and earned her many dividends. But when, as she saw it, she lost her beauty. She was like a millionaire who runs out of money. She took her name out of the phone book and got an unlisted number. With her looks gone, she felt she had nothing left to offer the world. So what she did was simply to check out of the world. My mother holed herself up in her apartment on 79th Street, then in just one room of that apartment, then in just one chair of that one room, and finally in the bed where one morning a few summers ago she died at last. Finally, under this point, David Foster Wallace Fairly famously now, gave a commencement address years ago. And David Foster Wallace was not a Christian. Though he was exploring Christianity later in his life, his commencement address is called, This is Water. And he said in the, to these college students, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life... Then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll never have enough. You'll need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. You see what he's saying. You see what Beekner's saying. You see what God is saying to Cain. Cursed are you from the ground. He's still being merciful to Cain. He's saying you've chosen to worship without faith. And it's going to eat you up. If you don't make a change. Sin is crouching at your door. That's another image of the same thing. Like, Cain, change is available to you, but sin is crouching at your door. It looks small. It looks partially hidden. You know, for us, it can be anything. Such as, as I said, worshiping our children, or our own beauty, or our own wealth, or our own intellect. It's just they're crouching at the door. It looks small. It doesn't look dangerous. But eventually, it's going to pounce. And it's going to, to destroy you. So how do we get worship Right. How do we take our worship away from those things and come to God through faith? Getting worship right. There are two things in our passage that lead us in the right direction. The first one is in verse 15. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. So that phrase, put a mark, the literal translation of that would be appointed a sign for Cain. It's sacramental language. It's the same language that's used of the rainbow in the story of Noah. Remember, the the bow in the sky in the clouds was a sign that God would never again destroy the earth. Well, what was this sign? What was this mark of Cain? We don't know visibly what this mark was, and there are all kinds of theories. Some of those theories, ridiculous. But here's what we do know, and here's what's amazing about it. This is from the the commentary of Wilhelm Vischer. He says, The sign of Cain is at once a stigma and a sign of protection. It's both a stigma and a sign of protection. Anyone bearing it is publicly branded by God as a murderer, but at the same time he is, by the same sign, protected as God's inviolable possession. The mark of Cain was not only a sign of God's wrath upon Cain, but also a sign of God's mercy toward Cain in protecting him from being killed. It was the first great sign of what Reformed theologians have called, and continue to call, common grace. Common grace is God's willingness to show mercy to his creation for the sake of his plan of salvation. He causes, as Jesus says, the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Or as Paul says in Acts 17, God determined allotted periods and the boundaries of our dwelling place that we should seek God in the hopes that we might feel our way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And he said this to a group of pagan philosophers. In God's common grace, God is telling the world just by the mere continued existence of the world, it's not too late. In our passage, he's telling Cain, it's not too late. I can spare you. There's still time to feel your way toward me. There's still time to change. You can be accepted. You can offer right sacrifices. You can find my saving grace. This mark of Cain was a sign of common grace and patience. But here's the second thing. In verse 10 now of our passage. And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. In Hebrews 12's commentary on that passage, this is what Hebrews says. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out to God from the ground for justice. And Hebrews tells us that Christ's blood cries out to the Father, but it's a whole new cry. It's a cry for absolute grace and forgiveness. Jesus, too, was sacrificed by people whose worship was misguided. And while Abel's blood cries out to God for justice, Christ's blood cries out to God for mercy. He was a willing sacrifice laid on the altar of God for all our sins, for all, our, all of our idolatry. And David Foster Wallace says, Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for choosing Jesus Christ is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And that's a non-believer saying that. You can know at the end of the day that Jesus will not eat you alive because he was eaten alive for you. You can know you're not going to be cursed because he became a curse for you. Your face doesn't have to fall when you stand before God because Jesus fell for you. Through Him and only through Him can, worship, can you worship God knowing that you'll be accepted. You're not trying. We're not trying to be accepted by our sacrifices. We are accepted because God has already appointed a perfect sacrifice. The Lord Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life and died the death of a sinner. though He was without sin for our sake. It's only when you know that, that you're freed from the worship of all these vain glories of the world to worship the true and living God. It's only when you know that, that you can be an Abel instead of a Cain. Trevor Moad, who's a sports psychologist, tells a story from when he was in high school that his dad went to a Toastmaster's event. I had never heard of Toastmasters. Maybe you have. Okay, some have. People would come and give speeches. People who are great, kind of our modern version would be the TED Talk, I suppose. And so Trevor's dad heard one of the most successful magazine entrepreneurs in the world speak. And he came home and he asked Trevor, the dad did, when are you taking your SAT? And Trevor said, next year. So this guy, so the dad goes on to tell Trevor a story that the guy who gave his speech was failing in high school years ago, but had promised his mother he would take the SAT his junior year. And so his junior year, he takes the SAT, and it's worth a possible 1,600 points. So failing high school, flunking out, doesn't really care, goes and takes the SAT, and he gets a 1,480. So basically, he's a genius, that's an astronomically high score. And when he gets his score, he tells his mother, Mom, I got a 1480. And you know what her first response was? Did you cheat? <laughs> and he says, Mom, actually, I tried to cheat. But, we, you know, with, with the numbers and the bubbles and all, all this sort of that, I couldn't figure out how to cheat. So, no, I didn't cheat. So, you mean you actually got a 1480? And he says, yes, I got a 1480. So, now he realizes... I I must be really smart. I just haven't been applying myself. So what does he do? He stops skipping class. He starts doing his homework. He stops hanging out with the people who encouraged him to skip class and not do his homework. Teachers start treating him differently. They're saying, we missed the boat on this guy. He's a 1480. And so he ends up going to college, transfers to an Ivy League school, becomes massively successful in business. And so the dad, telling this story to his son, Trevor, you know, Trevor thinks he understands the moral of the story. And he says, okay, I get it, Dad. This guy was really, really smart, but he needed a standardized test to prove it so he would start applying himself. I get it, I get it. And his dad says, no, that's not the story. After this man's success, years after this man's success... He gets a letter in the mail from Princeton, New Jersey, and he opens it up and he reads it. Well, the SAT board periodically reviews their tests for errors. And he learns that the year he took the test, he was one of only 13 people in the country sent the wrong test score. He actually scored a 710. And so this man says, people think my whole life changed when I got a 1480. What actually happened was, my whole life changed when I started acting like I got a 1480. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your immense grace toward us today. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? Yes, he died for us. We can be told over and over again from your word that you've accepted us. That we're not just 1480s. We're 1600s. In your book, we're counted as if we had done everything Jesus did. And he had died for everything we did. Spotless, blameless. Approaching the throne of God like lions. Bold we approach the eternal throne because we're fully accepted. And yet we live as if we need beauty and wealth and success and all these vain things that charm us most in order to really have standing, in order to really be somebody. Help us to trust in the person and work of Christ. In doing so, help us to worship you and to live lives of faith that will be spoken of through our families and through our church long after we're gone. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our closing hymn, number 660. the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all as we continue this, our short, earthly pilgrimage. Amen.